Welcome to the Agent of Influence podcast with Nabil Hanan. I'm your host, Nabil Hanan, Managing Director at NetSpy. This is a podcast sponsored by NetSpy as a place to share best practices and trends in the world of cybersecurity and vulnerability management. Portions of this interview will appear in print on the NetSpy executive blog. To find out more, go to www.netspy.com slash agent of influence. This is an episode in a series of interviews with industry leaders and security gurus. And it's a pleasure to have with me one of my newest colleagues today, Brady Bloxham. Hi, Brady. Hey, Nabil. Brady Bloxham is the former founder and CEO of Silent Break Security, which he started in 2011 and was acquired by NetSpy in 2020. Brady is focused on building innovative products and technology that push the boundary and sophistication of penetration testing and adversary simulation capabilities. Prior to starting Silent Break Security, Brady worked for the NSA and DOD, where he performed cyber operations and developed defensive tools and capabilities to support covert network missions. Brady has spoken and provided training at several cybersecurity conferences, including DEF CON, Black Hat, DerbyCon, etc. In February 2020, Brady was awarded the Utah Business 40 Under 40 Award for Successful Entrepreneurs and Business Executives. Brady holds a Bachelor's in Information Systems and an MBA from Idaho State University. So Brady, why don't we get started? You want to tell us about how you got started with security? Sure, sure. Yeah, and thanks for having me on today, Nabil. Pleasure to be here with you. So as long as I can remember, I've always been interested in computers and cybersecurity. I remember being probably not much older than probably seven or eight years old. And my family had this, you know, Windows 3.1 for work groups. And I remember just being in MS-DOS, playing chess and, you know, old school Windows. And just kind of messing around. We had, we even had a Bernoulli drive, which is like, you know, hardly anybody had those and no one, no one knows what they are today. But just that natural curiosity around technology and a healthy dose of mischievousness, I think, led me down a path of, of cybersecurity to the point where, you know, when I was a teenager and continued to, to learn mainly just through self-taught, continued to, to pursue the career in school. As you said, I got my undergrad from BYU in information systems. And while it was initially kind of difficult to get a job specifically in information security, you know, at first I really just kind of had a job hop from place to place, becoming more technical along the way until I could eventually, you know, land like a true cybersecurity job. And that that was when I got my job at the NSA after going through the scholarship for service program at Idaho State University. So overall, yeah, I mean, I I feel very fortunate to have gone down the path that eventually took me to the NSA, where I was just given all kinds of amazing opportunity. That's fantastic. So I have to sidetrack a little bit and ask you, what was the chess game that you played? Was it Chess Master 3000? Or I know there were a few other chess games on Windows 3.1 that I used to play. I'm curious, which one was your your game of choice? Yeah, it was Chess Master 3000. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was like, it was the, yeah, just an old school one. But I mean, it was, it was pretty cool. You know, you moved the mouse around and it taught me just, you know, chess moves. And more than anything, I just like to just tinker, you know, just kind of break stuff. 
So well, we'll have to play chess sometime when this pandemic is over, or maybe online. I don't know if you notice behind me, I have a, a chess board that kind of plays it by itself and moves the pieces, and you can play against people online too. So I do love chess, even though I'm not very good at it, but I do enjoy um, playing chess. Well, you're probably better than me because I don't think I've played since I played on Windows 3.1. So <laughs> in high school, I actually developed uh, a chess AI, which actually won me an award in, in high school. Oh, um, cool. It was a self-teaching, self-learning AI. But essentially, it would the more you played with it, the more it learned uh, from its mistakes. So that that was fun, too. Very cool. All right. To get back on track then. So, you know, you, you spent your career focused so much on offensive security. What are your thoughts on why it's important? to bake in offensive security as part of an organization's cybersecurity strategy? So I think that a lot of organizations miss this because naturally they're on the defensive side of things, right? And so being on the defensive side, they focus even more so if they're in an industry that has some sort of compliance or you know government regulation around it, that's what they tend to focus on right is is on the regulatory compliance or you know the latest best practice or you know whatever their auditor requires of them but at the end of the day they're not defending against an auditor they're not defending against a checklist they're defending against a living breathing intelligent adversary that knows how to stealthily pivot around a network undetected and so the adversary doesn't use the same checklist that you're using internally yeah not at all and and they don't <laughs> they don't care about the checklist they don't care whether or not you passed your audit they care about one thing, and that is getting in and getting access to the information that they're targeting. So I, I think that that offensive mindset gets overlooked a lot on the defensive side. And so since the beginning, when I started Silent Break, having the background that I had working for the NSA, that was one thing that we always tried to maintain and push was you can pass your audit. That's great. Audit is important. It certainly has a place in security. But again, at the end of the day, you're defending against a living, breathing adversary, not against an auditor. So let's model this ass assessment. And really, all of the services that we provided within Silent Break were modeled around that idea of how can we help organizations better defend against real-world threats, not simply check a checkbox and pass an audit. That's very insightful and definitely in line with what we hear from a lot of our clients that we talk to right there, sometimes so audit focused and sometimes so compliance focused. And, you know, and many times we get asked to do assessments, whatever it might be, pen test, code review, ad sim, red teaming. They often seem to forget that the adversaries don't have limits and, and boundaries the way we do when we do these assessments. So having that offensive approach definitely makes a lot of sense. And, and I tend to agree, it's a key pillar that needs to be part of your strategy um, overall for the organization, short-term and long-term. So from your background, you know, you and I are similar, you know, we have technical backgrounds, we've, we've done hands-on technical work. And for people like us, it often tends to be scary to step into an entrepreneurial endeavor, such as starting a company or starting a business. Uh, would love to hear from you what motivated you and how did you get started uh, with Silent Break Security and any advice you would have for others who may be interested in, in doing something of their own. So along the lines actually of, you know, what we were just talking about, baking cybersecurity into, you know, the overall security program, I was having, I was at a family barbecue 
And a friend of my sister's was in the neighborhood and came over and he was a director of information security. And we started talking about, you know, just security in general. And he started expressing to me some of his frustrations around the sophistication of the testing that he was getting. At this time, I was a government contractor. I had never done a penetration test. I was not a security consultant, knew very little about the industry in general. Through the conversation, though, and learning about some of his frustrations, you know, I just kind of threw it out there as as an option of, hey, like, you know, this is my background. I'd be willing to, you know, give it a shot, provide your organization with a penetration test. And after learning a bit more about, about my background and, and expertise, he agreed. And up to that point, it had, had always been a just kind of a side hobby of mine to build malware. And just in general, research Windows APIs and, and how to abuse those APIs to get malware to perform things in Windows that that API was not originally or initially designed to perform. So I go into this assessment, again, with zero consulting, quote unquote, security consulting or pen testing experience. And I just kind of have this little arsenal of custom tooling. And again, it just comes from my days of conducting ops for the DOD. And so I just took this collection of tools and provided them with the pen test. You know, I had to go legit. I've registered a business, uh, built a website. <laughs> And, you know, proceeded on this assessment. And it was, it, I, I did the assessment the only way I knew how. We had zero initial access, knew zero about the internal of the organization. And we started completely, well, I started completely external with, like I said, no initial access and knowing nothing about the organization and built custom payloads to uh, get access to the organization. And that's exactly what happened, you know, through phishing and these custom payloads. I was able to, you know, fly by his layers of, of defense and within probably, a, you know, I don't know, probably a day or two, get domain admin privileges and uh, pivot to production databases and things like that. And so again, I didn't know what to expect. I gave him a call and said, hey, so I'm in this, you know, production database. I'm doing this. I have, you know, domain admin. I pivoted to these hosts. Here's where I'm at. You know, I want to be sure that I meet your success criteria. So, you know, like what are what are the best next steps? And he was like, well, you're you're what? <laughs> and and so it was um it was just an eye-opening experience for him and also for me. And, you know, he was very well connected in the area, very well respected individual. And just through word of mouth, you know, the it, it really just snowballed from there. So I continued to provide those types of services on the side. Silent Break went from a home office to just kind of a, a one office suite to being in the basement of a dentist office to then going and getting four or 5,000 square feet in a, in a corporate office building. And that's where we're at, you know, to this day. So it was an extremely fun and, and exciting adventure. And it all started, yeah, with that, with that one assessment. Yeah, so that that growth and journey is, is obviously very exciting. You know, people like us who've had the opportunity to go through those type of growth uh, over the years, I've, I've been through something similar in my past life. It's definitely some of the more stressful, but also some of the most enjoyable times uh, that I've spent. Absolutely. So speaking about hobbies, since you brought it up, most people have hobbies like collecting coins, playing guitar, and your hobby was developing malware. So what advice would you have for anyone who maybe doesn't have the hobby of developing malware, but want to learn more on how to do it and on how to get involved in, in learning more? Uh, what advice do you have for them? Well, I mean, I think 
first of all, the world that we live in now is vastly different than it was 10, 15 years ago trying to learn this. There are trainings, there are courses, there are certifications. There's really literally never been a better time to be in information security than today. There is opportunity all around you. You can be self-taught like I was, or you can pursue it through a degree or certification. But the information is out there. You just have to want it, right? And that is what doesn't change, you know, is is the fact that you, if you want something, you have to put in the time and the effort and the discipline to learn it. And it doesn't matter how easy the information is to get, you still got to put in the time to get there and, and learn it and really be passionate about it. So Brady, what type of personality traits do you think people need to have to be successful in this space? I think, first of all, just a natural curiosity. You know, people that are just naturally curious and ask questions. You know, I, whenever, as we would hire more people, I would always tell them, look, like, I won't get mad or irritated. You will never get in trouble for asking too many questions. It's when you don't ask questions that I start to get concerned because there is so much to know in this field that there's no way you're going to know everything. So you have to ask questions and you have to be humble. I think that's a big one. And I also think that not necessarily taking other people's word for it, you know, or just because someone says, hey, this is the way that it is, you instantly listen to them and believe that that's how it is. There's just something about that person that makes them think, really? Is that really how it is? Or if I push that button, you know, right there, like, am I really going to get shocked? Or, you know, like, maybe I could do something else to change what that button is designed to do so that it doesn't do that. So I'm going to go ahead and push that button and try to figure out a way around it. And so just kind of yeah, that whole trust, trust, but verify yeah. sort of mentality or just don't if there's a rule, doesn't mean it can't be broken. Or if there's a control, it doesn't mean it can't be bypassed. That sort of mentality. Yeah, exactly. I think is is key. I actually, you reminded me of a very funny story from one of my assessments in my early days of my career. We were testing this a web application and we found unauthenticated um, SQL injection, right? This uh, a parameter that you could do SQL injection through. And I remember the developer that I was working with telling me that all the user passwords were being hashed on the database. But then I also recalled that when I couldn't log in the first time he gave me my credentials, I walked up to him and he ran a database query and said, no, look, this is the right password. You probably typed it in wrong. And that told me, well, he thinks it's hashed, but if he can reverse it with a database query to figure out what the password is on the, on the database table, there's no way it can be hashed, <laughs> right? So... So after being able to do SQL injection, uh, we did a, we looked up the system tables and saw that there was a method called encrypt uh, encrypt password. So instead of looking through everything, I just in the query did decrypt password on that password digest field, and long behold, um, clear text password was revealed. So even though they told me it was a hash of a password, it really wasn't. Yeah, it's the hashing versus encryption. Correct. Yeah. Uh, Cool. <laughs> it was fun times. Brought back a good memory uh, from a long time ago. Yeah, that's right. Uh, but, you know, you didn't take their word for it, right? You know, even though you were, this was probably the designer of this web application who you would think would know everything mm -hmm. there is to know about this, you didn't just take his word for it. You said, well, I'm going to push that button and I'm going to see what happens. Correct. Yeah, that's, that's exactly what, I would, what, what I'm talking about. Exactly. So let's talk a little bit more about Silent Break Security since that's been such a big part of your career um, as of late. 
what are some maybe core capabilities or products that you created that really resonated with customers and has had an impact in, in their cybersecurity journey? I'm really proud of what we were able to build at, at Silent Break. It started with just a laser focus on being the absolute best at sophisticated penetration testing and red teaming operations. And from there, it, it, it snowballed into building out products that would augment or facilitate the services that we were providing. And not just products, but training as well, products and training. So over the course of the years, we built Darkside Ops 1 and Darkside Ops 2. Both of them are very well known in the industry and very well respected. I'm very proud of, of the team that we put together that was able to build such an amazing training course and curriculum. And then also Red Team Toolkit. So, you know, like I said, as I've had a hobby in building malware, uh, the team that we build at Silent Break kind of shared that passion. So Red Team Toolkit, as when we eventually released it, is really the collection of the tools that we've developed and that have matured over the last 11 years in helping us conduct more stealthy, more covert, better red teaming operations. So, uh, you know, what started out as services really branched out into products, training, but I really feel they were all aligned with that focus or goal of being the absolute best at penetration testing and specifically red teaming operations. That's great. Can you tell us more about the, the training aspect of it? I mean, how is that training delivered? What are some of the more popular maybe curriculums that people enjoy? And what do they get out of those, those training sessions? Yeah, so Dark Setups 1 is malware development. It focuses on malware development, abusing Windows APIs. Basically, what's a good architecture and, and, and structure and strategy for building out malware in a stealthy way, you know, with command and control capabilities, stealth capabilities, all of that. And, and all of that is really built into Dark Side Ops 1. It focuses specifically on Windows, Windows operating system and Windows APIs. And, you know, at the time that, that we built it, there was really no other course like it that focused specifically on offensive development, offensive malware development. Over time, we built out Darkside Ops 2 adversary simulation, which focuses, it's probably has a, a greater focus on the operation side. So one is on building these tools and two is more on, okay, we have these tools now, how do we use them in a more stealthy you know, sophisticated way to conduct operations in a in, in a better way. So the two really come together extremely well. I think they they fit together well, and each of them is two days, and we typically provide them in a four day format. DSO one for the first two days, DSO two for the second two days, and yeah, we've been fortunate enough to provide these training courses all over the world. You know, in probably fifteen to twenty different countries all over the world. Well, that's exciting. And then can you tell me a little bit more about your Red Team Toolkit? That sounds very interesting, too. Is that just a technology that you've built that allows you know, your team members and assessors to be better at doing their red teaming activity? Or can organizations that have their own red teams also get access to the toolkit to enhance their capabilities? Yeah, so it, it's really, a, I guess, both. For the first probably eight years at Silent Break, we were building custom tools and we leveraged our custom tools to conduct our assessments. 
you know, again, our mantra was, hey, real world attackers don't use off the shelf products. They don't go out and buy, you know, Nessus, Metasploit, whatever. They write their own. And so we're going to do the same so that we can more fully simulate an attacker. And over the course of these eight years, the the tools became extremely sophisticated, you know, to the point where compared to anything else in the market, it was ahead in terms of sophistication, stealth, and just functionality. So at that point, we decided to release the tools that we were using internally within the Red Team Toolkit. So the Red Team Toolkit is, is now a platform that serves as a delivery mechanism for all of the tools within you know, the, the Red Team Toolkit that provide the ability for Red Teamers and penetration testers to perform more stealthy, sophisticated operations, Red Team operations. Got it. That makes makes sense. And, and that's definitely very interesting. I'm still looking to learn more about those as we, you know, spend more time together. You just recently went through the acquisition and, and, and merged with NetSpy. So can you share a little bit more about that process and any advice you would have for other companies that may be going through acquisition? Sure. So having a successful company in cybersecurity, you know, you get hit with emails literally every day from private equity companies that want to invest in your company or buy your company or you know have some part of your company. And when the conversation started, it was, you know, through Sunstone, who is a, um, you know, one of the owners of, of NetSpy. And to be perfectly honest with you, Nabil, when I saw the email from Sunstone, I was like, oh, it's another private equity company, you know, and just kind of tossed it to the side. After, you know, just doing a, a bit more research, I saw that they actually owned NetSpy and that NetSpy would be the one acquiring Silent Break. To me, that totally changed it, right? Because then we wouldn't be acquired by private equity, you know, financial minds. We'd be acquired by a, another organization that potentially at this point, you know, shared our values, shared our culture, shared our passion. And to me, that, that was like the most important thing in even starting to go down this road. So as far as advice goes, you know, I would say be selective in the process. You know, if you have a successful business, your business is doing well, you're in a good spot and you're certainly not in a, in a position of weakness. So be selective with the organization that you choose to spend your future with, because, you know, ultimately culture is the most important. Right. And while NetSpy and Silent Break obviously align from a services perspective, if the culture fit isn't there, then really nothing else matters. And one of my favorite quotes is culture eats strategy for breakfast. And I agree with that quote so much. And so for me, it would have never happened. You know, the deal would have never progressed beyond the first few phone calls if I wouldn't have gotten a sense from the NetSpy team, you know, Aaron and 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 also the Sunstone people were, were very supportive of Aaron and his direction for NetSpy. And so ultimately I, I felt like the cultural alignment was there, services alignment were there, was there, and it felt like a really good fit. But ultimately, all too often just due to the excitement of the discussions, they kind of overtake the direction and culture just kind of gets overshadowed by just the excitement of the process. We're going to have to make sure that we give Charles Horton credit for that quote of uh, culture eating strategy for breakfast, because uh, he's the one who I've heard it from. I don't know if I don't know what the actual source of that quote is, but he's the one who I've heard it from before. I've heard him say it. I've heard Aaron say it. I've seen it on LinkedIn. 
So whoever started, I'd like to shake their hand because I think it, it's a it's a very smart quote and someone that obviously understands business and what makes organizations successful. Maybe we can make that a call to action from this episode. You know, if you know who came up with that quote originally, <laughs> please share that with us because both of us want to meet this person and buy them a beverage of their choice at a minimum. <laughs> so Brady, you know, something that a lot of people may not understand or even know about you is that even though you have all this technical prowess, you actually grew up and are essentially a farm boy and you grew up on a farm uh, as a child. Uh, why don't you share with us a little bit uh, from that part of your life? You know, what's it like growing up on a farm and, and uh, what were the things that kind of helped you become who you are today? So, yes, it is true. I was, I was raised on a farm. You know, looking back, it's really a great lifestyle. It's a lot of hard work. I had to, you know, we called it buck hay. You have to lift the hay bales up. Um, we ha had to move a lot of pipe, sprinkler pipe, to, you know, water the hay fields. Spent a lot of sleepless nights in a tractor and days in a swather cutting hay. Overall, like I said, I, I think it is a great life. It's a great way to spend a childhood, and I wouldn't, wouldn't change anything about it. So I feel like a lot of those values really kind of formed who I am today and ultimately provided me with the work ethic and the determination that I needed to push Silent Break and to make it a success. And even in those early days when I said yes to doing that, that very first pen test, you know, like it gave me that idea that, hey, I can do this, you know, with some hard work and be successful at it. You know, that's, that's such great perspective too, you know, how, how we grow up does play such a large role and, and impact um, our lives um, in adulthood, right? Especially how we get exposed to different types of work ethic and, and activities as a child. It, it truly does mold us. So last we spoke, I, I, you did share with me that you've purchased a little farm uh, recently. So what type of things do you have planned for that farm? And I have a feeling that your five kids may have more planned than you do but would love to hear uh, what you and your family have planned um, for that property. Yeah, so so really, it's a lot of what I did growing up on a smaller scale, but I just want to provide that same type of, of livelihood and, and work for my kids. You know, uh, we also have plans to get some cows. Going to get some, actually, we already have some cows. So yeah, you know, it'll just be about providing that opportunity for my kids so that, you know, hopefully when they leave the house and they're going to school or come upon something hard or challenging in their life, they'll be like, you know, this isn't nearly as hard as it was working for my dad on the farm. This was a lot easier than moving that sprinkler pipe, you know? So yeah, it's just about trying to provide them with the life skills that, that they'll need to be successful in life, mm -hmm. you know, just like any parent wants for their kid. So uh, do you have names for the cows yet? What are they called? The kids do. Yeah. They named them Milky Way and Bones are the, are the two calves awesome. that we just got. Yeah. <laughs> and are there any, any other uncommon farm animals that are on their way or that you're thinking of adding? I wouldn't say uncommon. Um, I'm not a huge fan of pets in general. So my take is any animal that I own needs to have some sort of nutritional value. <laughs> so, so, you know, we get cows to eat, we get pigs to eat. And yeah, I'm pretty boring when it comes to that, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> People hate it when I look at my cats and, and my, my former dog and I would be like, hmm, you know, if there's an apocalypse, your dinner. 
right? <laughs> they, they don't like that too much when you talk about cats and dogs that way. But but I hear you. I, I get it. Well, Brady, thank you so much for your time today. It was truly a pleasure. I'm, I'm still bummed that we haven't had a chance to meet in person, but hopefully we get to do that soon. I'm sure we will. Thank you, Nabil. Thank you. This has been an Agent of Influence podcast with Nabil Hanan. Portions of this interview can be found in print on the NetSpy Executive blog. And please subscribe for future episodes of Agent of Influence at www.netspy.com slash agentofinfluence.